Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, July 21st, 2015. A week and a day from the Pirate 2015 conference, and you can still register at piratechristianradio.com. Intimate group this year, that's kind of our theme and it's on purpose. A little bit of an anti-conference conference, if you would. Hope you can join us in Aurora, Colorado, piratechristianradio.com forward slash, well, you know, click on it and click on the conference button, you get the point. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to actually, you know, open up our Bibles and, you know, compare what folks are saying to God's Word in context using sound biblical hermeneutics. And uh, we test what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, prophecy experts, to see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says, or if they're teaching something just crazy and bizarre that the church has never believed, taught, or confessed, because, you know, it's not what the Bible actually teaches. Kind of an important thing. You get what I'm saying. So uh, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I need to let you know that we do not, and I mean this, do not have a theme today. It is a, it's just oatmeal against the wall episode. <laughs> and we have some oatmeal. That That is for sure. We have got some oatmeal, and I... Just don't even know what to do with this oatmeal that we're going to be looking at today. And it's putrefied oatmeal to boot. Anyway, so let's talk about what we intend to talk about. We're going to begin with a uh, William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the End Times update. And it turns out that the uh, the Temple Institute has made their big announcement. And what is their big announcement? Oh, their big announcement is that there in Israel, they are breeding their own red heifers. That was the big announcement. So, yeah, uh, <clears throat> William Tapley, of course, Johnny on the spot regarding all the prophetic angles out there in the news, especially, you know, news stories that you had no idea had a prophetic angle. You know, he's on those, too. Uh, we'll be hearing from William Tapley 
to start off with. Then we're going to switch over to Glory of Zion. Now, last week we played the video where they were talking about the month of Tammuz. Yeah, the reason I say that is <laughs> because if you remember last week when they were talking about the month of Tammuz, they were saying that if, if you don't worship properly during the month of Tammuz, you could find yourself building a golden calf. <laughs> You just can't make this stuff up. So, uh, of course, you know, we were a little bit behind. We did not actually play the Tammuz video in the beginning of the month of Tammuz. It was really at the end of Tammuz. And I did, bet you didn't know this, but now we're into the uh, Jewish month of Av. And uh, so we've, we're going to go down to Glory of Zion and get the latest and greatest insights on to you know, what God is up to, you know, prophetically speaking, now that we're entering into the month of Av. Yeah, I wish I was making this up. So then we'll have a quick uh, money-grubbing televangelist update via John Hagee. And uh, did you know that the Star of Bethlehem reappeared, apparently, at the end of June? I, You know, I saw it when I was at Reformation Montana. But no, I didn't see the Star of Bethlehem. But I saw what they think, you know, what at least John Hagee thinks is the Star of Bethlehem. And yeah, it wasn't all that impressive. Yeah, all it was was a... Uh, you know, a convergence of the planet Jupiter and the planet Venus. Yeah. In fact, it was, it's really funny. Uh, you know, one of the nights at Reformation Montana, uh, uh, Jordan Hall and I, we, we, we were out chewing the, you know, the fat and talking, and we were outside. And uh, I looked up and I said, whoa, check it out. I mean, there's Venus and there's Jupiter. They're really close together. That's pretty neat. And then we just kept on talking. And, you know, apparently we missed the entire prophetic significance of that whole event. I mean, I did see it. And uh, Jordan Hall is my witness that I did mention it. But, uh, yeah, apparently the whole, the, all what the Lord was trying to say through it just totally, like, bounced off my brain and never even made a dent. So we'll check in with the John Hagee on that. And then we're going to go back and we're going to listen to Patricia King from her big, big tent conference that she did couple years ago when she was uh, going on and on and on about this burning man thing and and listen to her and kind of reevaluate some of the things that she said um regarding uh, you know the importance of the baptism of fire and uh, we'll just test what she's doing there so that's what's going to make up our number one our number two we're going to do something we do not do very often here at fighting for the faith and that is we're going to do a cold sermon review and i i'm not saying that it's you know cold like you know it's going to be shivering outside but i have not reviewed this sermon in its entirety in fact i have literally reviewed 18 seconds of it and i thought yeah that's all i need to know that i'm gonna have to review this and uh so we're gonna be listening to a sermon from living word uh in fact let me hang on let me find this uh this church living word family church and they are in uh, they're north carolina hang on a second here wake forest or wake forest north carolina and the name of the sermon that we're going to be listening to is entitled Changing Gears. Yeah, I have no idea. It's got some uh, uh, female pastrix doing the preaching. So we're going to we're going to review it cold. You know, it's <laughs> I have no idea what's going to happen in the sermon. So th this will be one of those times where you can kind of like think along with me as I try to explain, you know, what I'm looking for, what I'm listening for when I'm uh, doing a sermon review. 
So uh, that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And uh, since we're going to be starting with a uh, William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and Co-Prophet of the End Times update, that requires us to do this. Doom and gloom coming soon. Listen to Third Eagle's tune. Doom and gloom. God is telling us the end is coming soon. Very soon. You'll see signs up in the sun and stars and moon. Doom and gloom. Very soon. Rapture comes at night or noon. Doom and gloom. Very soon. If you're ready, you will meet the bride and groom. All right. So uh, William Tapley has uh, weighed in regarding the announcement from the uh, Temple Institute out there in Jerusalem in Israel. And uh, he's uh, he's not all that impressed about the announcement that a, they're breeding red heifers in Israel. Here's William Tapley to explain the, the real prophetic significance of the red heifer thing going on. Here we go. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I am your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the co-prophet of these end times. The Temple Institute made their great announcement this morning in Jerusalem. And whereas many of us thought they were going to announce the groundbreaking for a third temple... Yeah, I think there would actually be, the Israeli government would be involved in that. You know what I'm saying? That would be a kind of a such a big announcement that it could, like, set the entire Middle East on fire. So I, I doubt the Temple Institute's going to make an announcement like that all on their own. Instead, they announced that they were going to begin breeding a red heifer. And as I warned about in my last program... Well, actually, I watched their video, and they're not only breeding a red heifer. They're they're going to, like, keep their own flock of... Is that herd? Sorry. <laughs> Flocks of birds. Yeah, the herd of red heifers. Yeah, they're breeding an entire herd of them. They will use this for ritual animal sacrifice. That's like, correct, and that's not a good thing. Told you then... That would be an abomination. And oddly enough, I am finding myself agreeing with William Tapley, and it's making me feel really dirty. Any police chief will tell you that where you find animal sacrifices, you find Satanism. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah, so <laughs> apparently wherever you find animal sacrifices, you'll find Satanism. Just ask any police chief. Ah, this is ridiculous. We continue. And Paul Bagley, again, made a huge mistake. He did a program today, and he said that a third temple would be a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And that is a huge error. And they have, and they are going to continue, it looks like, pushing forward for rebuilding of the third temple, which, of course, is biblical prophecy in the Word of God. Yeah, so, you know, watching William Tapley take on Paul Begley, um, that's like watching two featherweight, uh, I don't even want to say boxers, Um, it's like watching... Two junior high girls, you know, squaring off to have a fight. 
after sixth grade um, PE class. You know what I'm saying? I'm not sure what he's talking about. If he is talking about Ezekiel, Ezekiel is talking about a temple which will be built during the millennium. He is not talking about a temple to be built in these end times. So I thought I would read to you some of the pertinent passages from Scripture to prove that Paul Bagley and many others here on YouTube are wrong about a third temple. And here is what Ezekiel says in his beginning chapter 40, verse number 2. In the visions of God, he brought me into the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain, upon which there was as the building of a city bending towards the south. And he brought me in thither, and behold, a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass. Now, this is no ordinary man. This is the Son of God. This is Jesus Christ, who is going to build this temple. Okay. Um, you and your ability to kind of identify people in Scripture is just, well, a little bit on the dubious side. You think that Benjamin Netanyahu is the Messiah mentioned in Daniel 9? Yeah, this may be Jesus or it may not be Jesus. The thing is, is that when you open up scripture, William, it always makes me just more than a little bit nervous. With a line of flax in his hand and a measuring reed in his hand, and he stood at the gate. The temple which he is building will be a rebuilt church because the church will be destroyed. Oh no! <laughs> I I can't untwist this. It, it it's I just have to present it to you in pretzel format. Remember, Jesus prophesied, "Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again." <laughs> yes, and John makes it clear the temple he was talking about was the temple of his body. Actually, talking about his physical body. You know, the one that rose from the grave. Of course, we all know he was talking about his body. Right, exactly. His resurrection on the third day. He was also giving an end times prophecy. Oh, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, have you ever read Don Quixote? William Tapley is to prophecy as Don Quixote is to, um, well, knight-errant quests, if you know what I'm saying. I, I can't go on. This is almost too painful. Ay, 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 ay. You kind of get the point. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, William Tapley has not become more sane over the years. I believe that um, his dementia has taken over. Moving along. <laughs> What do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice, the genius has sliced. They're Pinky, the Pinky and the Brain, 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 Brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled. By the dawning of the sun, they'll take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain, yes, Pinky and the Brain. Their twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, 
All right, so what we're going to be listening to last week, I think it was, we listened to Glory of Zion and their ex- explanation of the importance of the month of Tammuz. Moo, moo. Yeah, if you're not worshiping correctly, you can find yourself inadvertently building a golden calf. <laughs> Which means now that we're entering the month of Av, yeah, you know, <laughs> who knows what could happen to you in this month. And so <laughs> here's Robert Heidler of Glory of Zion to explain to us the significance and importance of the uh, Jewish month of Av, spelled A V. Here we go. Amen. Amen. You know, I think these monthly first fruits gathering are really one of the most important things that we do. It's a very biblical thing. That's what they did back in biblical times. They would always give the first of the month to God. Yeah, I don't think they would sit around during the first month, a part of the month, and listen to nonsense. Yeah, you can say this is biblical all you want, but uh, if you if this like even comes remotely close to what you did remar- regarding the month of Tammuz, then uh, well, this will not end up being good theology. It might end up being comedy. And they would gather together and they would worship God and they would bring their first fruits offering and they would also gather to the prophets to find out what God was saying about the month that they were coming into because every month... Yeah, my, uh, prophets were not fortune tellers. Yeah, you, you, what, where in Scripture can you point me to where at the beginning of each month people would come and gather to hear what the prophets had to say, what's coming up this month prophetically? Yeah, I'm not familiar with that passage of Scripture. Maybe it's next to that... It's right probably in the same section of Scripture where we find... Uh, destiny genes and things like that, you know. Biblically, it's a new prophetic season. And so it's important to know what season we're in, what God is saying to us. And what we found is as you stay in step with the Holy Spirit, as you flow with Him from month to month, you begin to prosper in everything you do. Yeah, it doesn't mean, if, notice he says not reading your Bible. Yeah, no, no, no. You, you need to be getting direct revelation via the prophets. You know, like the Apostle Chuck Pierce. And then, you know, your prosperity will flow right on, you know, from God to you. Yeah, I don't think so. So let's go ahead and put the PowerPoint up. We're coming in now to what is really one of the most crucial months of the whole year. It's a- All right, th- you're writing this down. This is a crucial month. You, you need to be taking notes. A very important month to understand what is happening what its pitfalls are, and how to flow in it to enter into God's blessing. Yeah, so you got to you know avoid the pitfalls so that you can flow, you know. Uh-huh, right. Where does the Bible teach this again? So we're coming in to the month of Av, which is the month of Simeon, and we want to see the keys to reversing the curse. Oh. <laughs> what? The... <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah, this guy's been to the William Tapley School of Hermeneutics. Okay, what are you talking about? Tell your neighbor, God doesn't want you to be under a curse. Oh, no, no, I I believe that. I'll, I'll claim that for myself, uh-huh. So we need to reverse every curse. Now, in the biblical calendar, we are entering the month of Av. It's the month associated with... Yeah. The tribe of Simeon, 
The Jews call Av the time of dire straits. Yeah, I remember that band from high school. Yeah, Money for Nothing and Your Chicks for Free. Yeah, I, I remember that band, yeah. And biblically, it's one of the most crucial months of the year. It's a month sometimes you have to squeeze through a narrow place to get to your future. <laughs> well, there that rules me out. Oh, man, I won't be able to get to my future, folks, because it's going to require me to squeeze through a narrow place. And unfortunately, you know, the the girthness of my being prevents me from able, being able to squeeze through narrow places. So my I have no future, folks. I can't even begin to squeeze through a narrow place in order to get into my future. Maybe you smaller people, you have a chance, but... No, those of us of rotundness, we, uh, well, we're ruled out here. This, this is very disappointing. Historically, the Jews have considered Av to be a month associated with a curse. If you study the history of the Jews, you discover, you discover something very surprising because the Jews have experienced many calamities over the years, and most of those calamities have occurred on the same day of the year, the ninth day of the month of Av. Uh-huh. So that, that's a bad, bad day. Ninth day of the month of Av. You know, no, no, is it at all related to the Shemitah? And since this is a blood moon year, you know, you got the four blood moons and the Shemitah going on here. Um, yeah, um, you, you, you might want to brace for impact, folks. I mean, it's all over. It's the month of Av. You know, this is way worse than Tammuz. I mean, it's, you start studying Jewish history and it, you think something's going on here. It was on the 9th of Av in 587 B.C. that the armies of Babylon destroyed Solomon's temple. It was on the 9th of Av in 70 A.D. that the Roman armies destroyed the second temple. It was on the 9th of Av. Same day, different year? Really? Okay. A.D. 135 that the... Jews suffered their final defeat by Rome and Jerusalem was destroyed. It was the 9th of Av, 1095, the first crusade was launched, which killed thousands of Jews. The 9th of Av, 1290, all Jews were expelled from England. The 9th of Av, 1492, Jews were expelled from Spain. The 9th of Av, 1942, the deportation of the Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto into the death camps began. Uh-huh. Yeah, this seems to be like the same kind of scholarship that gave us the Shemitah and the, um, yeah, and the Four Blood Moons. And there's quite a few centuries between each of these uh, events, although you're, you're claiming that the, that the common thread is the Ninth of Av. And, uh, okay, so what does this have to do with Christianity? The 9th of 2005, expulsion from Gaza began. Now you look at that and there's really a lot more than just what we've uh, given here. But you look at that and you think that's not just a coincidence. Something is going on there. It's called a curse. Now if we understand the 9th... Yeah, uh, something's going on there. You think it's called a curse. Yeah, I just, uh, hmm, yeah, not sure what to call that, but okay, sure. Ninth of Ab curse, it will help us understand how to avoid curses in our lives. Uh, uh, really? So, um, okay, let's just kind of take your scenario for a second 
And let's say that this is just absolutely spot-on scholarship. I'm not saying it is, not saying it isn't. We'll just assume right now that it is. And, uh, you know, there's, you know, these 500-year blocks, you know, between bad things happening, you know, on the month of, in the month of Av. And it happens to people who have rejected the Messiah. It happened to people who were in idolatry, you know, things like that, you know. Um, you know, you know, the first temple was destroyed because of rank idolatry. God judged the uh, the nation of Israel, and then 70 A.D. Those who crucified the Lord, you know, they were judged, and God scraped the temple off the temple mount. And now nobody is capable of actually practicing biblical Judaism. There isn't a single person on the planet that can actually do it. And so, yeah, we've got that going on. And then, you know, you're mentioning other things that have happened, you know, calamitous to those people who are genetically Jewish. And I, and I think that's all tragic. These are all historical, you know, from, you know, from there on, there are some real historical problems there. I would say some terrible things that have happened to them. And they are, and some of them are totally unjust and not even Christian. But again, your your interpretation of all of this is that somehow this means that the month of Av has some latent curse attached to it. But if I'm catching you correctly, well, it only has a latent curse attached to it if you happen to be genetically related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You, you get what I'm saying here? Um, this doesn't really affect me. I'm kind of a European mongrel. But we continue. The first thing we need we need to know is this. It was never God's plan for his people to live under a curse. The month of Av was never supposed to be a month of disaster and sorrow. It was supposed to be a month of blessing and celebration. So let's look to see how the curse began. Yeah, how exactly did it start? Back in Exodus, we see that God brought Israel out of Egypt by his mighty power. At Passover, he broke the power of their slavery. He released them from the enemy's oppression. He led them through the Red Sea. He showed them his faithfulness in the wilderness. He brought them down to Mount Sinai and appeared to them and revealed his glory. And then as they came up to the month of Av, he brought them up to the border of the promised land. Twelve spies entered the land. They searched it out. They brought back the fruit of the land for the people to see and taste. And they all agreed, this is just what God promised it would, it would be. This is a wonderful land. It's rich. It's fruitful, just like God promised. They only disagreed on one thing. And that was whether they could trust God to give them the land. Ten of the spies brought back a bad report. They say, it's a wonderful land, but we can't take it. The enemies are too strong for us. If we go in there, we'll be killed. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, said, God will give us the land. God has brought us this far. Let's move forward in faith and take the land. And on the ninth of Av, Israel chose to listen to the voice of unbelief. Gasp. Oh, no. Oh, you know what that means. Yeah, I mean, now they're just totally cursed. <laughs> what on earth? God had opened the door to their future, but they refused to go through. Uh, so God has cursed the, the ninth day of... Again, if I just go with your premise, I'm not genetically related to these people. So what does this have to do with anything? 
Let me say this. When God opens the door to your future, yeah. the only thing that will keep you from inheriting the promise is for you to turn back in unbelief. And when is God supposed to open the door to my future? What exactly are you talking about? And that's why the month of Av is a crucial, crucial month. You do not want to turn back in unbelief this month. Yeah, whatever you do, you know, because, you know, if you turn back in unbelief, you might find yourself in Tammuz and then building yourself a golden calf. Uh, man, this is no way to read scripture. Yeah, this, this oh man. So the, this this is the premise, the idea that somehow you know the, these are significant events in the month of Av, and and they prophetically are speaking to you right now as you enter into the month. Of, this is not biblical teaching. I mean, this is basically nonsense masquerading as biblical teaching. I mean, granted, I mean, he's mentioning people from the Bible and events you know, that are happening to people who are related to those in the Bible. But this isn't if God wanted us to understand the importance of, you know, the curse attached to the month of Av, you know, and specifically beware the ninth of Av, you know, then God's word would actually say that but it doesn't so this is not anything that we need to be concerning ourselves with this is just another example of you know just teaching absolute nonsense at least the tom Ooze thing was somewhat silly but anyway we're up on our uh, first break if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my email address is talkback at fighting for the faith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, what are we going to be doing when we come back? We've got a John Hagee update and a Patricia King update. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. <laughs> You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> no, oh, no, oh, a pirate's life for me. We fellas, we wonder, we rifle, we loot, drink up, be hearty, yo ho. We kidnap and ravage and don't give a hoot, bring up, be hearty, yo ho. presents Church Day Select. Oh, has it been a week already? Right, uh, package for you, ma'am. Just uh, sign there. Oh, dear. I was expecting something a bit... Larger? Is that all there is? Afraid uh, so, ma'am. Uh, sorry to disappoint. Oh, <laughs> no worries. I'm sure more will be on the way. Uh, thank you so very much. Uh, have a good day, ma'am. I wonder what's in here. Oh, I do hope I haven't been ordering chia pets in my sleep again. Oh, it's a DVD! Oh, this had better not be another one of those Lectio Divina thingies. 
if you are watching this, it means that you have purchased the post-apocalyptic preparedness package. You have bought the bronze edition. Bronze edition? Please don't be alarmed, as your full order will be arriving within the next few weeks. Next few weeks? The end of the world might have happened by then. I should have paid the extra $99.99 for the faster shipping. The purpose of this DVD is to catalog everything that you will be receiving in the Bronze Edition package, along with information on our other great offers. Looks like there are different chapters to select from. Let's see here. Toiletries, clothing, nourishment, shelter, sanitation, medicine, gardening, energy, communication, weaponry, underwater basket weaving... Okay, additional accessories, expansion packs, and ooh, play all. <laughs> I'll choose that one. As you know, God has given us signs in the sun, moon, and stars that the end times are approaching. After the destruction of your country, the everyday comforts you currently enjoy will have been disintegrated by God's judgment. By investing in our merchandise, you have proven to God that you have audacious faith in his prophets, seers, and visionaries. Now we're ready to dive into the crucial survival equipment you have purchased. Well, I'm certainly glad that God knows I'm faithful. No doom and gloom for me. You have purchased the... Bronze Edition. Please pay attention to which items you will be receiving. I have my new pad ready. Part 1. Toiletries. In the Bronze Edition, your toilet paper will be made from the finest scratchy banana leaves and corrugated tree bark. Toilet paper made from scratchy banana leaves and... Wait, what? In the Silver Edition... Your toilet paper will be made from all-natural, organic, recycled plastic. In the gold edition, your toilet paper will be made from hand-quilted spider silk. This can't be right! In the bronze edition, you will receive a block of wood with bristles and a baking soda solution for maintaining healthy teeth and gums. Here's a pro tip. You can use your own hair as dental floss. Yeah! In the silver edition, you will receive... Oh my! I sat on the remote! It's fast-forwarding! Um, uh, where's that done play button? Oh, oh, wait, there it is! Part 5. Nourishment. In the Bronze Edition, you will receive 24 cans, each containing one month's supply of beans. As a nifty space saver, the cans are first filled with fresh river water, then topped off with dehydrated beans. This way, you'll have your food and water in the same convenient package. Strainers and can openers will not be included. The Silver Edition will provide dried fruit and vegetable packets along with a 36-month supply of chicken noodle soup and 50 gallons of distilled water. The Silver Edition will provide dried fruit and vegetable packets along with a 36-month supply of chicken noodle soup and 50 gallons of distilled water. What? How is that even fair? Gold Edition buyers will be given 50 crates of freeze-dried astronaut dinners. Flavors include chicken cordon bleu, lobster surprise, filet mignon, oysters, caviar, and steak. Cheese platters will be served on the side of every dish. Water will come in glass bottles along with a complimentary water fountain with color-changing LEDs. This is ridiculous! I can't believe I wasted my cat's life insurance on this! What else is in this stupid thing? Gold Edition shelters have been constructed by our teams ahead of time for you. You will be getting your maps and keys to access your top-secret bunker in the coming weeks. Complimentary bouncy castles and jacuzzis can be found next to the theater room behind the bowling alley. In the silver edition, you will get him and her matching gardening gloves. For prosperous crops, this edition includes an inflatable radiation-proof greenhouse. Part 33. Communication. Now pay attention, bronze buyers. Using two of your Space Saver Nourishment cans, you can attach this six-foot string to each side to make an electricity-free telephone. 
As a special promotion, we will also be giving out 12-foot strings for long-distance calls. Gold Edition weaponry includes six holy hand grenades, one hideaway moat, and... I can't believe this! They didn't say anything about different editions on the website. How, how do I upgrade? I can't survive with any of the useless junk they're sending me. What are the shams of these sleazeballs running? I could have sworn she said something about expansion packs. Additional accessories, such as a Holy Ghost decoder ring or a church box CD, can be purchased individually for $24.99 each. Please wait for our full accessory list. Ah! I don't want to hear any more of this rubbish. Part 104. Expansion Packs. Our hottest item is the Mr. Sparkle Party Pack. This little number comes with four sparkle suits, one disco ball, seizure-inducing strobe lights, and confetti poppers. It's fun for the whole family. I want my money back. This is an absolute outrage. I can't believe I fell for this ruse. This concludes our DVD presentation. If you have any questions, please call the number not located at the bottom of your screen. And remember that all payments are non-refundable and non-negotiable. Thank you, and have a wonderful apocalypse. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that those people out there trying to find the prophetic significance and season attached to, you know, Hebrew months and things like that, 
that they're not actually teaching you God's Word. By the way, that's a good thing. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world, and you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. Time for a money grubbing televangelist update. Don't want no loving. Don't want no kissing. Don't want no gal to call me honey. Don't want my name in the Hall of Fame. Just want a big fat pile of money. Give me that almighty dollar for that lettuce. Hear me holler. Give me buckets full of ducats. Let me walk around and waller in Mazuma. El Dinero. Wanna be a millionaire? Give me money, 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 money. That green ammunition, that's the stuff for which I'm wishing. Fill my closets with deposits, I'm a demon in addition. Give me shekels, give me pesos, let me see their smiling faces. Money, 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 money. money. Wanna get me a suit that's made out of oot and whistle for wearing and green. I got that monetary itis, like speeches, like King Midas. Want that golden touch is what I mean. Give me that old double eagle. Want that tender that is legal and financially substantially. Any sum I can inveigle. Want a living regal splendor for that loving legal tender. Money, 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 money. All right. <laughs> so if you have your Bible, uh, open up to Matthew chapter 2. Open up to Matthew chapter 2. But before we get to Matthew chapter 2, I just want you to have your finger there and ready to kind of check if you would. Let's listen to this important announcement, this prophetic announcement from John Hagee. You know, I don't know if you knew this, but apparently the star of Bethlehem has reemerged and it per- and it happened at the end of June. No joke. I mean, that's, at least that's what he's saying. You know, here's John Hagee to explain. This past week, June 30th, after the absence of roughly 2,000 years, the star of Bethlehem made a return appearance in the heavens. Uh, it did? Really? How, really huh? Yeah. I'd like to at least take a look at the biblical text on this to kind of see if we can figure out what's going on with the Star of Bethlehem thingy. Because, you know, I saw what you're referring to, by the way. I was in Montana at the time. But uh, let's take a look. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Yeah. Um, rose. It, the star rose. Okay. So, yeah, that's kind of an important part because if, you know, with a convergence of Jupiter and Venus, they wouldn't rise. They would just quickly set. Big difference. So when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, 
And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring uh, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. It's quite a star. Yeah, and, uh, you know, when Jupiter and Venus converge, uh, that doesn't really last long. That That's a convergence that uh, is quickly over, if you know what I mean. But let's let's listen again to John Hagee as he's making this important announcement. Science reports that Venus and Jupiter made their tightest, highly visible conjecture in nearly 2,000 years. Yeah, so? The reference to the star of Bethlehem in 3-2 B.C. is believed by astronomers to be the convergence of Venus and Jupiter. Yeah, uh, again, these uh, magi, they would have known the difference between a star, singular, and a convergence of planets. And uh, this convergence, you know, if it were a convergence, it seemed to last a long time. I mean, long enough for, you know, these magi to, like, pack up their bags, load them up on camels, and then make the really slow journey from wherever they were to Jerusalem via camel. I, I don't know if you know this, but camels were not known for their speed. They, they weren't like the Pony Express of the day, you know what I'm saying? And and then you know the star was still doing its thing when they met with Herod, and then the star rose and then you know led them to the exact place where Jesus was. How would Jupiter and Venus and a convergence of those two pull off such a, a, a miraculous feat? If you know what I mean? Yeah, you're saying science has confirmed that. Oh, yeah. Well, science is just speculating. They're trying to come up with a natural explanation for something that sounds really supernatural in the Gospel of Matthew. So I'm going to go with the supernatural explanation rather than some natural one. It happened the night Christ was born. It happened again last Tuesday night. Yeah, actually, it happened for a lot longer than the night of Jesus' birth. Last week. Yeah, no, it did not occur in the end of June. It did not. The first time in nearly 2,000 years. Yeah. Joel, the second chapter and 30th verse says, I will show you wonders in the heavens before the coming of the Lord. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, I will show you wonders in the sun, the moon, and the stars. Yeah, and we've already debunked your Shemitah teaching. And uh, so you claiming that somehow this is a wonder in the stars, yeah, it doesn't sound like a wonder to me. I mean, it's kind of neat. I mean, I saw it. It was kind of really cool to see Venus and Jupiter so close together. But, you know, even with my bad eyesight, you know, and of course I have to wear glasses. Uh, my my I failed my faith healing class by the way, but uh, so you, you know I saw it and I even could clearly see they were just two planets close together. You know, June the thirtieth, the star of Bethlehem reappeared. Yeah, no, it didn't. God was sending us a signal. No, he really wasn't, uh, unless you've bought into the uh, William Tapley school of prophetic significance. <sighs> Are we watching? Are we listening? The king is coming, church. 
Prepare to meet the Son of God. Yeah, yeah, you've been warned, folks. Yeah, apparently the Star of Bethlehem just reappeared on June 30th, and God's trying to send a signal, you know, trying to, you know, let you know something's really up. And I would basically say, listen, we've known that this convergence was going to happen for like a long, long, it didn't like show up out of nowhere. And it doesn't even remotely sound close to the way scripture describes the Star of Bethlehem. So I just feel like, you know, he's fear mongering. Yeah, in order to sell more of the Shemitah books. Yeah, that's what I would think. All right, moving along. Time for Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update. Here we go. Down at an English fair, one evening I was there. When I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. There they are standing in a row. Big ones, small ones, some as big as your head. Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the showman said. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Every ball you throw will make me rich. There stands me wife, the idol of me life, singing rarely bear a ball, a penny a pitch. Singing rarely bear a ball, a penny a pitch. Singing rarely bear a ball, a penny a pitch. Rarely bear a ball. Rarely bowl a ball, singing rarely bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. That's right, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Now, remember we've been kind of grinding on this for a little bit. Uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. This is what I think the book of Ephesians says. And so the idea here is uh, th- those out there claiming that, uh, you know, Chris, there's baptized penitent believers in Jesus who don't have the Spirit and are in need of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They don't believe in one baptism. They believe in two. Well, you know, Patricia King, well, she's never to be outdone. Two is never enough for her. She believes in three. Mm -hmm. Here's Patricia King to explain from her big tent conference. But anyways, today's message is um, on the baptism, the baptism with fire. And uh, what I'd like you to do uh, is turn in your Bibles to Matthew uh, chapter 3. And, you know, a number of years ago, back in, I think it was the 1980s or early 90s, I was sitting in front of my fire in my living room one night as the fireplace was on. And I was just enjoying the ambiance of, you know, just having some time alone with God. And I had my Bible open and I was reading the Bible and just enjoying, you know, meditating on the different verses. And I came to Matthew 3, uh, verse 11 and 12, where it talks about the, the baptism with Holy Spirit and with fire. And I had never really noticed the baptism with fire before. And my spirit caught it, and I just grabbed hold of it. I thought, I want this fire. And it said that it it burned up the chaff and the dross. I thought, I want that, and I don't think I've had it. I know I've been baptized in water. I know I've been baptized in the spirit. But what is this baptism with fire? Yeah, now notice here, um, again, Scripture says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. So, uh, how many did, baptisms did you count there? Uh, baptism with water, baptism with the Spirit. Now, this is a third baptism, baptism with fire. Well, here's what she's doing. It's a Matthew chapter 
3, verse 11, John the Baptist talking, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, here's the... (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) this is... Not a good verse for Patricia because she's not an exegete. But anyway, so <laughs> she thinks that the baptism of the Spirit and baptism and fire are two different things. Now, I would argue that they're one and the same, but if you were to split them up, <laughs> then you've got a real problem because in the immediate context, the, the, the next reference that talks about fire is the fact that God's going to... Uh, burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire, and that's referring to, well, um, yeah, um, judgment, the day of judgment when Christ throws people into the lake of fire. So, I mean, you, you either put the two together, you know, baptism of the Spirit and fire, you know, is, you know talking about the, you know, the, the fire of the Holy Spirit, which is one way you can talk about it, or you're dealing with the immediate referent pointing to fire actually being judgment in the in the fires of hell. <sighs> Awkward. Anyway, um, but again, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and now we're up to three here. But listen, God speaks to her directly. So you know, listen into how she's going to let direct revelation and personal experience dictate her understanding of this text. Now, when the Lord highlight something for you in the scriptures that has your name on it. He is revealing it to you. And if you see it, you can have it. You know, it's just a matter of it manifesting. If you see it, you can have it. Really? Where does it say that in the Bible? Treasure every promise that God highlights to you because that is the word coming to you. So you got to treasure every word that God highlights. Uh-huh. Where does it mention this doctrine in Scripture again about God highlighting things in your spirit? That means it's for you. And yeah, huh? Right. I've never read that in God's word. So you just kind of made that up, didn't you? When God speaks that word, it is yours. It is yours to stand on. It is yours to live inside of. And so that word came to me and I was excited. And I said, Lord, I don't know what this baptism with fire is, but I am going to stay on this promise until it manifests. Uh huh. And that, and that is if you haven't received the Holy Spirit and this baptism with fire is referring to judgment, yeah, yeah, it's I I really hate to see you wishing this upon yourself, Patricia. So I was sitting in front of the fireplace, I was looking at the fiery flames, and I thought, cool, you know, that must be a confirmation. So I said, I'm gonna stay <laughs> So she's sitting in front of the fire she sees the flames in the fireplace. Ah, that's confirmation from God that she's gonna receive the baptism of fire. Oh no. All night. Until this fire comes. I'm not going to sleep until it comes. And so I was praying and calling out to God and reaching out to receive and everything I knew to do at the time to receive a manifestation of the promise from God. (laughs) Oh, this is sad. And it was about three o'clock in the morning. I was still praying and, and, you know, I was, I was getting a little bit discouraged because I'd been praying since about 10 o'clock at night till about three in the morning and no matter. Yeah, no manifestation. I mean, God highlighted this in your spirit. So that means it's yours, you know? 
sensation of fire yet. Nothing. You know, I was just still praying and posturing myself to receive, but no manifestation. And um, so I guess, you know, I guess I just drifted off into sleep. And when I woke up in the morning, I was cold because the fire was out. And, uh, and I was disappointed with myself for falling asleep. And, and I thought, but I didn't get that fire. What is that fire? And of course, I was a, a, a mother with children. I had to look after my household. So my, my time of being able to, to just press into God was over. The night was over and I had to, to do my motherly duties and my, you know, household duties and things like that. But I never forgot that moment. And sometimes God will give you a promise at a certain time that he wants you to carry until, carry it in faith until it manifests. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where did you get this doctrine again regarding this, you know, highlighting of the things in your spirit and that, you know, it's a promise. So God promised her apparently because, you know, it highlighted in her spirit that uh, she's going to get this baptism of fire. Because it's not. Uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't always manifest the moment you receive the promise. But you are to keep it, to carry it. It's like a pregnancy. When Mary, the mother oh boy. of Jesus, was visited by Gabriel, she received the promise. And that went inside of her. And from the time the promise was given to her, the promise was alive. She was impregnated, but she didn't have her baby to hold yet because he hadn't. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, so when something highlights in your spirit, it's just like when, you know, Mary conceived Jesus. It's it's the same thing. Right. Manifest within the realm of time. It was in in her womb and in your womb are promises that are. I, I don't have a womb. I'm a dude. Be birthed. And God wants you to carry those promises in faith. And sometimes it's years. Like in the Old Testament, it was hundreds of years later, sometimes when a word would come into manifestation. But when God gave it to his people, it was to be carried. That's why it says many of them went to their graves believing, but not yet seeing the manifestation of the promise. But from generation to generation to generation, it was carried in the womb of God's people until it manifests within the realm of time. So there are seasons when God will give you confirming words, prophetic words, you know, maybe. Yeah, notice she's not teaching this from any biblical text that says anything of the sort. The other thing we've heard is um, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, out of context. Prophecy saying the same thing. And in your devotion, scriptures that come off, jump off the page that you know have your name on it. But you So when a scripture jumps off the page that you just know that you know that you know that you know has your name on it. Well, you know, you can take that promise to the bank. It might take a while, though. Why 15 years later, it still hasn't manifest. Don't lose your faith in it. Take hold of it. Yeah, where does God's word teach us to read God's word this way? Dream, dream upon those promises. Over the years, I have held on to that word. But, you know, I was busy doing other things. And, you know, even though it was alive on the inside of me, I was believing that there was a baptism of fire. I didn't know what it was. But I held on to that promise knowing it was real. Well, this spring, the Lord spoke to me. Uh, once again. Lord spoke to her again. Are you sure that was God talking to you? Are you sure you weren't accidentally hooked up to like, you know, the sulfuric place? Very, very clearly. 
And in Matthew 3, John the Baptist, who was, you know, the most powerful prophet um, at that time, Jesus even said so. It says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he, Jesus, who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear. Yeah, just because it says and doesn't mean that it's a separate thing. It could be a cumulative thing, you know, Holy Spirit and fire. You know, when the Holy Spirit appeared on the day of Pentecost, how did he appear? Tongues of what? Yeah, huh? Right. Exactly. So, um, you know, it you know it, it could be like a cumulative and, you know, like I went to the grocery store and I bought some eggs and milk and honey and I bought some chocolate chips and then I bought some, you know, diet pills. And, uh, and, you know, and, and so when you use the and in that way, it's it's cumulative. It, it adds up. It compounds, if you know what I mean. Um, and sometimes and can mean, you know, two completely different things. You know, I went to the store and I went and got the car washed. In that particular sense, you know, you understand two different things. But again, we kind of have a governing principle as far as how many baptisms we're supposed to be expecting as Christians. And it's Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 4, where it says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called into one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So there you go. One Lord, one faith. How many baptisms? One baptism. Scripture teaches one baptism. Not multiple, one his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire now i want to submit to you that these are two separate baptisms not one in the same yeah and i would say ephesians 4 verses 4 and 5 totally rule that out because if we were to expect you know two or three baptisms then well you know there would have been two or three baptisms practiced in christianity from the beginning, but there's only been one baptism ever practiced in Christianity up until recently. And I mean, like really, really, really recently, like up until the point of like the appearance of the Azusa street folks, one baptism, one. Yeah. We continue. The Holy Spirit baptism and the spirit of fire baptism are two separate baptisms. Baptism means full Immersion. No, it doesn't because scripture is clear that baptism means washing. By the way, baptizo means to wash. It can mean to dip. It can mean to dunk. Um, And, you know, the uh, Jews, they would practice baptism of couches. Yeah, they would not go down to the river and fully immerse their couches. Yeah, so no, it does not mean that. That's not what the word baptizo means. And in the corporate body of Christ, historically... We have not seen the corporate move of the baptism with fire yet in the history of the church. And I've checked it out. Yeah, and there's a reason for that is because there is no, there are not three baptisms. There's one Lord, one faith, 
One baptism. One, one, uno. <sighs> yeah, I think you get the point. Yeah, she, she, it just goes on from there. and it, it doesn't get any better. It only gets worse. And that's what Scripture says about false teachers. They go from bad to worse. That's part of the plight of being a false teacher. They are wandering stars and uh, waterless rain clouds. And I think Patricia King clearly qualifies as the most waterless rain cloud that we have tracked for years here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to be doing a sermon review and I'm going to do it cold. I've only heard like 18 seconds or so of it, so stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Hey, ho! We got the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon... comes to us via Living Word Family Church in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Now, i got to admit, I've scoured their website, and I do not know the name of the lady who is going to be doing the preaching. I think, I'm guessing, based upon their website, that she's in charge of their youth ministry. But <laughs> all of that being said, the name of the sermon we're going to be listening to is entitled Changing Gears. I not listen to more than 18, 20 seconds of this, and so we're going to review this cold. And um, I have no idea where it's going to go. I have no clue. It just didn't sound like it was starting off on the wrong right foot. That's all I'm going to say. So let me go ahead and back off. And without any further ado, here is the lady who I think, I'm guessing, is in charge of youth ministry over there at Living Word Family Church in Wake Forest, North Carolina, and her sermon entitled Changing Gears. Here we go. Do you remember your first straight drive? (laughs) Well, some of you call it a stick shift or a manual transmission. Where I'm from, it's called a straight drive. And if you have the southern draw, I'm from the mountains of North Carolina, it's straight drive. (laughs) So I grew up uh, seeing my dad work on cars and build cars. And um, when I, when I was little, my mom had a firebird. I don't know what model was. I should have asked her yesterday, but it was a firebird and the gears always locked up on it. And so I remember that because I was probably about four years old. I remember this distinctly because every time I was out with her somewhere and the gears locked up, dad would have to come get us. But every time it would lock up, I go, I want to go home. And it always scared me. So that's like imprinted in my brain. And uh, my dad always had a motorcycle from the time that I can remember. Probably, I think I, I know my mom has pictures of me on the back of dad's motorcycle when he was like, I was like five. So by the time I was five, I was riding everywhere with my dad on the back of his motorcycle. Um, back in the seventies, anybody know what a dune buggy is? Dune buggy. Okay. So like back in the early seventies, there was no dune buggies, but my, my dad and his brother built rail buggies. They used a VW engine and built rail buggies and nobody had ever even seen one. You couldn't even buy one. So they welded it all together and made rail buggies. And we always went riding and did stuff like that. My uncle had a body shop right next to us and he worked on cars and always rebuilt cars and stuff like that. And, um, my aunt Janice, 
his wife had a 240ZX. It was like my dream car, Datsun 240. You know, guys remember what that looked like way back in the day, but that was like my dream car. That was like, I'm going to have one of these when I grow up. I mean, my aunt Janice, she was the coolest aunt ever. Everybody have those cool aunts. It's like, you're a cool aunt. She was my cool aunt. I wanted to be just like her when I grew up. And I was like, I'm going to have that car someday. <laughs> Little did I know they stopped making those and stuff, but I did have a 280ZX. But my very first straight drive was a 300ZX. It was an 84 model with T tops. It was light blue and it was a straight drive. And so, um, the first day that I got it, I'd never driven a straight drive before in my life. And I drove it home from the dealership. <laughs> yeah. I have no idea what this has to do with the Bible. And I'm like, I'm exhausted already listening to this. Yeah. Um, sermon time is the time for, you know, God's word to be preached. And uh, I didn't know this was a social time. I got it. It wasn't new at the time, obviously, but I drove it home from the dealership. And so I was like, you know, how hard can it be? I mean, seriously, and I was, I was by myself because somebody drove me there to pick up the car. So I'm, I'm driving it home. And remember, I live in the mountains of North Carolina. So every, every like road and stuff like that, you're either stopping on a hill or stopping going downhill. Like everything is hilly and curvy and everything in the mountain roads. And so, so, but I had to figure it out. So I was like, in first I stalled, I don't know how many times I stalled out on the way home, but it was a lot. <laughs> and, uh, and then I was like, okay, okay. When cars would get too, if you ever get, when you're first driving and the car gets too close to your rear end and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to roll back. I'm going to roll back. I'm going to hit him. Oh my gosh. You know, you're sitting there just praying and in, in the spirit, you know, trying to like, then so, so you're just like, oh, just, you know, just. So praying in the spirit will keep you from accidentally running into the person behind you. If you're driving a straight drive, did not know that. I'll have to tuck that little bit of knowledge away. Rev it as hard as you can so that you don't run into them or so that you don't back into them when you're trying to drive it. But that was my first experience driving a straight drive is you have to get the gears just right. And so um, um, when, when you're learning to drive a straight drive, the gears, when the RPMs have to be right, uh, to take the stress off the engine and then to give it the right amount of gas to increase the speed. So that's what we're doing. So um, let's, let me give you some tech terms here and we're uh, talk about changing gears today a car engine okay tech terms are going to help me understand the bible better okay engine makes power in a fairly violent way by harnessing the energy locked in gasoline that's what it kind of does it works efficiently only when the pistons and cylinders are pumping up and down at high speeds about 10 to 20 times a second so even when the car is simply idling on the on the roadside, the pistons still need to push up and down about a thousand times a minute or the engine's going to cut out on you. So in other words, the engine has a minimum speed at which it works best. It's a thousand RPMs. That's what your RPM gauge says. But that creates immediate problem because if the engine were connected straight to the wheels, then it would have a medium a minimum speed of a thousand RPMs, which is about 75 miles an hour. <laughs> so there's an issue here. The problem, you got to fix it. And so it takes a massive amount of force to get the car moving from, uh, from right at the word go. You don't generate enough force to do it. That's why you need gearboxes. Okay. So to begin with a car. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why we need gearboxes. Right. Yes. This is not helping me understand God's word at all. It needs a huge amount of force and very little speed to get it moving. So the driver uses a lower gear. Um, in effect, the gearbox is reducing the speed of the engine greatly, 
but increasing the force of it at the same time, it gets the car moving. So once the car's going, the driver switches to a higher gear. More of the engine's power switches to making speed, and then the car goes faster. I know all you dudes are like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Okay, but girls, I'm just I'm giving you a little lesson there, so now you know where we're going. Yeah, I'm sure the women in the audience are really grateful for this tech talk. All right, ladies? Okay. All right, so the thing is, is our lives are a lot like this. You ever heard, uh, you ever heard uh, the saying, okay, let's change gears? All right, so, okay. Let's- yeah, I, I've heard that before. Can you show me a biblical text on that one? Change gears. All right. So if you have your Bible today, if you will um, hold it up and let's pray over the word. And I'm going to need another Kleenex or the one that I had is fine. My eyes are being healed in Jesus name, but they're watering. And so I'm going to be doing this a lot. I'm really not crying. So just in case you were wondering. <laughs> All right, let's pray over the word. God, we just thank you so much, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the men and women who died just so that we could have a copy of it in our language so that we would know your will and your way for our lives. We thank you, Lord, uh, that it never returns void, but always accomplishes what you set out for it to do. We thank you, Lord, when we apply it to our lives, when we uh, commit it to memory. That How many words per second do you think she's talking? We hide it in our heart. It helps us not to sin against you. And we just thank you, Lord, for this message. We thank you, Lord, for your anointing. I completely depend upon it. I thank you, Lord, that it would be all of your words and none of mine. God, I just thank you, Lord, that you would give us uh, something that we could use in our everyday lives today. So she prayed that it would be none of her words and all of God's. Well, we didn't start off that way now, did we? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so changing gears. Um, you also the, It's also familiar, the term, um, also switching gears or shifting gears. But the definition is to suddenly change what you are doing. To, to suddenly change what you're doing, to switch from one thing to the other. So, see, gears transmit power from the crankshaft to the drive shaft, and then it's connected to the wheels. Okay. Right, and if you use a left-handed st- stats on the that drive shaft, you can just crank those gears right down to the max. You know what I mean? Okay, and so when you change gears, it makes your pedaling more efficient. So if you're a bicyclist, it makes your when you change gears, it makes your pedaling more efficient. Like when you're on a bike, Diane uh, Deanne owns a bike, and she does that. How, however, I'm not sure why. How many of you are, are like bikes? You like pedal bikes? You like that? Awesome. I, don't, I have no idea and do not understand why you would have a bike without an engine. It just doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> All my bikes have always had engines. <laughs> so that's a totally different animal as learning to drive a motorcycle. Um, my first motorcycle, and it was back in 1999. So when I was learning to ride it, then, I, you know, we were still living in the mountains. So um, so right outside of our neighborhood, there was a major highway. And you, if you went straight across the highway at the light, then it was the mall parking lot. And so I would ride all the way down and then just look and get across the street to get into the mall parking lot so that I could ride around and... What was the point of having people get their Bibles again? We're not quite there yet, are we? And practice, because changing gears in a car is one thing, but when you're doing it and trying to balance everything is a totally different animal. So I would go through the parking lot and like stop and then start. And then, you know, so it's kind of learning that all over again where you're stalling out the engine. And then it's like when you get to the stop sign, you're like, okay, I've got it. Is it in first? Is it first? Is it in third? No, it's in first. Okay, you got to make sure it's in first. You had this like dilemma in your brain. Did I, did I gear it all the way back down? I'm not sure. Did I do it? And then, so then you make sure it's in first, make sure it's in first the whole time that you're stopped. And then you take off. Some of you are looking at me like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And some of you know exactly what, how many of you know exactly what I'm talking about when you're first learning to ride? You're like, make sure it's in first, make sure it's in first. Because if you try to start out in third, it is not good. 
It is not good for the people behind you. It's not good for the people who are telling you that you are number one on the highway. It is not good for anybody. I'm just saying. And so, so I try to, you know, uh, learn as much as I could in, in shifting those gears and, and doing, doing it. Uh, and, and getting it right to, to do it. Well, you don't shift gears like on the motorcycle. It's, it's different. Okay. So <laughs> when you're doing that, it's, it's a whole lot different. So, okay. Before we talk about changing gears and moving forward in our life, then let's talk about the slacker of all gears. So we're going to change gears here and the slacker. So we're changing gears to talk about the slacker of all gears, right? Should, should I be taking notes on this? Of all gears is neutral. Yeah, that's the slacker, that neutral gear, yeah. All right. Neutral. Don't be a slacker. Nudge your neighbor and say, don't be a slacker. All right. So those of you that just nudge too hard, nudge them back and say, you don't be a slacker. (laughs) Idleness is the opposite of diligence. Okay? So diligence is intense effort. Anything that you're putting intense effort, that is the opposite. Yeah, now, just so you know... uh, um, I'm reviewing this cold. I've never heard this sermon. I have no idea who this woman is. I just know where she's from. And, uh, well, generally what we look for in a biblical sermon is, get this, you know, the Bible. Yeah, in order for a sermon to be biblical, it needs to have the Bible in it. And thus far, we're nowhere near that. Um, Not sure when the Bible's going to show up. I'm sure it will. But, uh, wow. Of diligence. So go with me in your Bible to Proverbs chapter twenty, chapter twelve. Proverbs twelve. All right. So we're finally getting to the Bible by uh, Proverbs chapter twelve. This is not a good sign, by the way. And verse twenty-four. I'll give you a second to find it. Proverbs twelve verse. 24. I encourage you to take notes today. And I encourage you to look up the scriptures. You will remember four times more if you write it down, even if you never look at it again. Even if you leave here, throw the paper in the trash, or never open up your notes again, you'll remember four times more just if you write it down. Right, which is all the more reason why I shouldn't write this down because I believe after this is done, I'm going to want to block this from my memory. We continue. And looking at the scriptures for yourself. It helps you to hear, to see it for yourself and know where it is for yourself and know what it says. Don't take my word for it. Are we there? Proverbs twelve twenty four says, The diligent find freedom in their work, and the, but the lazy are oppressed by work. Yeah. Um, another translation, but that's not a bad translation. The hand of the diligent will rule while the slothful will be put to forced labor is another translation. That's the ESV. And here's the thing about Proverbs you need to know, is that Proverbs is a book rich with third use of the law. Now, if you're not familiar with the uses of the law, God's law kind of has three primary uses. The first use of the law is the civil use. This is the use of God's law used by governments to punish and you know uh, evildoers. That's the idea. And so it's designed to curb evil in society, which is a good thing because it helps with the pre- uh, preaching of the gospel. Second use of the law is the primary use. Primary use then is the it reveals that we are sinners, completely unrighteous and ungodly and in need of a savior. That's the primary use of God's law. And all you got to do is preach God's law. And that's what it will do. Um, and then the third use of the law is only for those who have penitent faith in Christ. And it shows us what a good work is. So Proverbs is chock full of third use of the law, if you would. 
And the idea here is is that if without being a, a penitent believer in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you could mistakenly think that uh, your right standing before God is somehow uh, achieved and or maintained uh, by how well you're doing the Proverbs. Yeah, so you got to be careful because... This is law preaching by you know by its essence, and so you got to be careful with law preaching. Got to preach God's law correctly. Let's see what she does. And what I mean by that, by the way, if she preaches this in a way that is going to convict people of their sin, what's going to be the solution? Is the solution penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, or just be obedient and do what this proverb is telling you to do? Which then the law becomes the solution to your law breaking. That's a spiraling, uh, out-of-control nosedive that'll put you right into the ground. We continue. Okay, so turn over to the next chapter, Proverbs 13, verse 4. I'm going to read this in the Eastern Standard Version. But it says... (laughs) The Eastern Standard. Eastern Standard. Oh, okay. I, I like to read the Western Standard myself. The soul... The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. I want to be diligent. I don't want to be a sluggard. I don't want to be a slacker. Punch your neighbor and say, don't be a slacker. When you're in neutral, you aren't accomplishing anything. You're just burning fuel. You're burning up all your gas and you're going nowhere when you're in neutral. And so I'm going to ask you today, what areas in your life are you in neutral? Where are you in neutral in your life? Oh, no. Oh, this is going to be just law. Pack your bags, folks. We are going on a guilt trip. This is not going to be good. Life. Is it an investment that you're uh, that you need to make decisions on that you haven't moved forward with? Is it a business idea? You're sitting on you're just in, you're burning up all your gas and you're not going anywhere with it. Is it what to do with your teenager and uh, and how to navigate that? Is it direction for your career? That you're kind of sitting there in neutral. You're burning up your gas and you're not going anywhere. You're trying to figure it out. What about that calling that God has placed on your heart? You know that you have. What would that calling be exactly? That calling and you're not operating in it yet because you're like, okay, well, I'm waiting on this to be fair, all the conditions to be favorable and for you to figure it all out and have everything in place before you move forward. Yeah, there's not, there's, uh, listen, when it comes to guilt, I mean, you know, there's guilt that comes from, you know, God's law. Then there's guilt that comes from like false doctrine. So apparently they teach there that God's got to lay some dream destiny thing on your heart. And if you're a neutral, then, you know, whew, you're just not doing what God wants you to do. So this is what we would consider like baffling guilt or, you know, non-specific guilt, or at least not based on sound doctrine. You Just the nagging feeling, I, I'm supposed to be doing something regarding this destiny, which I'm not sure if this is God telling me to do this or not, but I better be doing something because, you know, ah, you know, I'm not. Oh, boy. And then, and then I'll put it in drive. Okay? So, but you're in neutral. You're burning up all your gas. You're going to go, you're, you're just going to run out of gas before you even go anywhere. Why are you in neutral in your life? Okay? And, um... The thing is, is that you stop being a slacker. Stop being a slacker. Yeah, so now the law is the solution to your law breaking. You're a slacker. You need to stop slacking. Just get with the program. Obey. Now get in line. Law on top of law. Not And by the way, the solution to our sin problem is not the law. The solution to our sin problem is the gospel. 
This is why you preach law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and then bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. She's just, oh, she's hammering you with the law. She, there's a proverb here. Take a look. It says you've got to be diligent, and you're not. So let's examine the areas in your life when you're not being diligent, and you just need to get in line. <sighs> yeah, this is the kind of preaching that will make an atheist out of you a lickety split. Don't make excuses. You're making excuses, and... And that, you know, you're as to why you're not in drive, but this, but that, but I don't, I don't know, but, but I have this excuses. The thing is, is that an excuse is a skin of a lie stuff with a reason. Okay. So stop making excuses. Okay. Left foot, drop the clutch, put it in gear, first gear, right foot, hit the gas and get out of neutral. Am I right? Get out. Oh man. <laughs> I want to want to crawl into a you know, corner here and assume the fetal position and start sucking my thumb. Wow, this is scaring me. Out of neutral and move on. You have things to do. Your wife is counting on you. She's looking at you to move that forward. Your husband is counting on you. Your children are looking to you for that. You're, the people around you, your leader is looking to you to be able to move forward. So get out of neutral and let's go somewhere. There's a dying and hurting world outside these four walls and they are looking for us to do something about it. If we stay in neutral and we're not going out and we're not doing anything outside these four walls, if you don't take advantage of every opportunity, if you're not looking for every situation to be able to turn it into a teaching moment for your children or an, a divine appointment for to, to speak life into somebody's uh, uh, life that day or to help them to smile or to give them a compliment or just uh, somebody, you know, that every... Now, <clears throat> Men, you recognize this tone, don't you? Yeah, I, I recognize it. This is the tone my wife uses with me when I'm misbehaving. Everywhere you go, the people that are checking you out, I have to consciously pay attention to talk to people who are checking me out in a, in a grocery line or at a store and stuff like that. Because honestly, I mean, I'm friendly, but when I'm out on my own and stuff like that, I'm actually quite shy that I don't like just... I'm trying to engage people in conversation on purpose that I don't know. I, you know, I'm like, okay, good. I'm just going to get my groceries and go, you know? And so, um, but I consciously have to pay attention to do that. So I don't want to be in neutral and miss a divine appointment that I could make a difference in somebody's life. Even if it's just to give them a word of encouragement or to lift. So now I got grocery store guilt because, you know, when I go to the grocery store, you know, listen, my goal is to get in, get out. That's what I do. I'm a dude. You know, it's like, you know, I'm hunting, you know, it's like, tell me what aisle I need to go to, what exactly I'm supposed to grab. I grab it. And then I go to the checkout line and I pay for it and I leave. And the whole time, the only thing I'm thinking is, how do I get out of here sooner? So I, apparently I'm in neutral, and now I've because I'm in neutral, I have missed an opportunity to make a difference in somebody's life. Oh, I'll never go to the grocery store again. I just can't live up. <laughs> we continue. Them up, and maybe you don't know what's going on in their life. You don't know what's what their day is like, and they may just need that word of encouragement to to help you with that. Okay, so let's put it in first, and let's go. All right. All right, so let's change gears, okay? Let's go to drive. When you aren't sure about uh, changing gears and you're not sure about this stuff, then, uh, then you start out in first, and then like in the video, fear takes over and you stall out. 
You're in first, you're revving it up. You like, I have all of this zeal, but then that fear overtakes you and you don't like put it in gear and go. And then you stall out. So sometimes it happens like that. So pushing the clutch, shifting the second and hit the gas. Okay. The Lord told Moses at the Red Sea, tell the children of Israel to go forward. That's from Exodus uh, 14, 15. Jesus told the man with the withered hand, step forward. <laughs> oh, man. So now we're just going to do a biblical survey of, you know, where God gave orders. And so you got to get just get, Moses told the people to get into the Red Sea. And, you, and Jesus told that dude to stand. You had better get out of neutral and get into first gear. If you know what's good for you. In Mark 3, 3, the apostle Paul said, go with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, it's in your New Testament. Go down to verse 14. Okay. Verse 14 says, I press on toward the goal and to the prize of the high calling of God in Jesus Christ. I press forward. I'm going forward. I'm going forward with the call that he has. So where are you stuck in first gear? You're, mo- you're, you're moving forward. Oh, man. <laughs> She's, it says right there in Philippians, I press forward. So you better get out of neutral and get into first gear. <laughs> She's taking these verses out of context and using them as a club to beat us with. Oh, man. This is abuse. You still, you have all this energy revved up, but you aren't changing gears. Where is that in your life? You had the zeal. You've got it in park. You're not in neutral anymore. You're trying to go, but then, you know, that fear is just kind of got you to where you're, you're afraid to go into, you're in first. And then you're like, okay, I know I need to change gears. I know I need to go to second, but I'm scared. And so where are you that in your life? You're afraid to move too fast. Um, Job chapter 17, verse nine. You can just write this down. We go to a couple of scriptures here. Job 17, 9 says, The righteous keep moving forward. And with those and those with clean hands become stronger and stronger. Proverbs 23, 18 says, Surely there is a future. And your Yeah, this is not how to handle God's word. Man, every verse out of context. No context whatsoever. She's just looking for stuff that's talking about moving forward. You better get your gear. You oh. Yeah. Hope will not be cut off. That's good scripture, right? I mean, that's good news. Changing gears is about using the engine's power in different ways. Yeah, no, I haven't heard the good news yet. All I've heard is the law condemning me. Yeah. To match the uh, changing driving conditions in your life. Use the gear shift to make the engine generate more force or more speed. That's what you need to, to go forward in your life. Psalms 31, 24. This is a good scripture. Some of you need to write this down, write it on your mirror, put it somewhere that you, that you can see it every day. How much you want to bet it's more law. It says, be strong and he will make your heart stronger. All you who hope in Jehovah. He will make your heart stronger. Some of you need your heart to be stronger. Some of you have law to condemn law is the solution. Get in gear and start obeying been uh, beat down, tore up, ripped apart. And you got pieces of your heart and you don't know how you're going to put them back together. And you need your heart to be stronger. Stand on this scripture, because if you're going to go forward in your life, you're going to accomplish what God has for your life. Then you need for your heart to be strong. Because if it's not whole, then you're you're taking care of your own wombs. You're tra- you're dressing your. Own- and then you hear preaching like this, and you come across a passage where you know Jesus says, "Out of the heart comes all kinds of sin." Right? 
you sit there and go, well, I guess my heart isn't right. Yeah, so this woman's telling you, you got to get your act in gear. You better you better get with it. And then and then she says, you need to protect your heart kind of thing. And then you start sinning, and you're right, because that's what we do. And then the solution is more law, and then you're just going to think, well, I'm just not measuring up. I guess I'm not even a Christian. Own bandages. You're taking care of your own self because you have to you have to take care of that before you can take care of somebody else. And so make sure that your heart is strong. Make sure that, um, that you have, that it's whole, keep moving forward with your dream, your ministry, progress in your marriage. All of those take diligence. They take intense effort. You can't just sit in neutral and fulfill your dreams. Life will happen. Stuff happens. It's going to it's gonna move forward without you. Yeah, get out of neutral. And if you're in first gear, you better get up to second. If you're in second, you better get up to third. In case you haven't figured it out, every transmission, every area of your life is not always smooth. Sometimes it's jerky going into third gear. <laughs> Sometimes it's real jerky. You see on the video where she's like, I know she's doing it on purpose. She's a professional driver, but it's jerky going into third gear. Sometimes you kind of got this thing down. So then by the time that I knew that, that I learned to drive a straight drive, I had several cars along the way that I had that were straight drives and then learned to ride a motorcycle, been riding a motorcycle for many years. And then, um, a few years ago, um, it's been five or six years ago. Now I was on a mission trip in Scotland. And so, um, I lead a mission trip almost every year, at least at least one or two, but with global expedition. So we were in Scotland. I had three teams there, me and my co-leader. And so we had three different teams in Scotland that, um, so it was about, I don't know, 70 teenagers on this, on this trip. And each team had a male and female adult co uh, leaders that were over them. And then me and my co-leader led the whole project. Okay. So, um, so when we got there, they rented a car for us so that we could, so they had little mini buses to take the teams. They would go out in the ministry on this side, um, of Dumbartonshire and, and this side over here where William Wallace was tried, I could see his, ca- his castle like from my window in the castle that we were staying in. It was pretty cool. And so then on, uh, so on this side, uh, this team was over here doing uh, ministry on the grounds and uh, doing service projects. And then this team would be across town doing street drama uh, right in the streets of Glasgow. And, um, and so, we were, so we had to be everywhere. So they rented us a car um, so that we could drive around from team to team, check on them, make sure everything was going the way that it needed to go. So they assured us that it would be an automatic, you know, we're in Scotland, they drive on the wrong side of the road. And so we're hearing a lot about her and no scripture in context, just getting pummeled though by bad law preaching here. So, um, but when we got there, there's no, there's no automatic transmissions there. I'm convinced in the whole country, the only one that they had for us was a straight drive. Okay. So, so now I can drive a straight drive. No problem. Except for when you get in the car, you're on the wrong side. And so are all the gears. They're on this side, not this side. And every intersection in Scotland is a roundabout. So you get in the roundabout and you have to remember to get out of the roundabout on the wrong side of the road. Okay. So then I think, so then changing gears was like an afterthought. So here's what we did. We, we, we bound together me and my co-leader and we decided for the first like day and a half, we changed gears for each other. <laughs> so I'm driving, I would change gear clutch. Okay. Change gears <laughs> so that we could get used to it. And then when I was driving, I would change gears for him. And so, so I was like, it took us a day or something to get, they just threw us out there and said, here's the map, go visit your teams. <laughs> and they're like, okay. Cause most of the time when we're in another country, then we have a drive 
driver. We have somebody that takes us around where we need to go and uh, people who know the roads, people that know how to drive on the wrong side of the road and all that good stuff. We did not. And so we just had to wing it. It was fun. It was awesome. And then the cool thing is that, uh, well, it wasn't cool. It was actually cool. The, the team thought it was cool was that the rear uh, windshield wiper would not turn off. We could not figure out the button anywhere, anywhere in the car. We searched it over and over. Every time we would stop somewhere, we were like, this has got to have a button somewhere. We are going to find this button to turn the rear. Cause it, cause it was raining a little bit. It's cool in Scotland, you know, kind of rainy and stuff like that, even in the summertime. However, it was like, it would never turn off. So when it was dry, it was like, <laughs> so what we did was the whole time that we were there, we went out there and you know how you can like, uh, put uh, up the, the windshield wiper so it doesn't touch the windshield. So that's what we had to do. So we went around the, for the whole two weeks that we were there. It was like wagging like a tail. <laughs> so here are these crazy Americans driving around Scotland with a wagging tail on our car, stalling out everywhere, trying to remember how to get out of the roundabouts. It was awesome. And so uh, the guy who was uh, running the uh, the ministry where we do, we did skateboard, skater ministry. So a skater BMX uh, place that we went to um, every day to do skater ministry. And so it was really cool. But he said, Here, all you have to remember is the driver's in the middle of the road. The driver's in the middle of the road. So th- after he said that, it clicked. I was like, oh, okay. If the driver's always in the middle of the road, I knew how to get in and out of all of the, the things and then to change the gears. But sometimes it's like that in your life is that you know how to change the gears. You got this thing under control and then life throws you a curveball and you got to figure it out. Now you kind of know how to do it, but you're not really sure. And so you just got to figure it out. And sometimes that's, that's the way it is in your own life. You have to figure out um, how to switch gears. Some of us, uh, you have to deal with new obstacles that come in your life. You have to... Yeah, she hasn't learned how to switch gears between the law and the gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. She's stuck in law gear. Find that balance to figure out how to work it out. So um, you balance work, you balance home. You balance your kids. You have to balance that. You have to switch gears from being a mom to a wife. Wives, your husbands are still going to be there when you're sweet, little, wonderful, beautiful, crumb snatching, crumb snatching, curtain climbing babies grow up and leave you. I mean, your husband's still going to be there. So um, switch gears from being a boss to a dad to a husband. You know, uh, husbands, guys, you can lead with authority in your household and you should, you should do that. But if you come home and deal with your wife, like you deal with the business deal, your wife might be in danger. (laughs) She might hurt you or punch you in the throat. You have to switch gears a little bit. You have to have a little bit of more finesse. You might have to figure out how to say that a little bit differently than you do your employees at work, right? Okay, from parenting uh, to, to, to from parenting by authority to parenting by influence. See, a, a two-year-old needs no. You parent by authority. No, you get a reminder. However, you discipline your children. Okay, <laughs> not going to go there. However. No, you take care of your two-year-old differently than you take care of your teenager. A teenager needs the moral reason why. They need to know why you're telling them why they do it so that when you are not there, they know not to run through the hall because they can knock somebody over. They need to understand why, why that matters. You have to change gears in your approach in every part of your life. Okay, it's all about balance. You have to balance, okay? 
more force, less speed, more speed, less force. It's just like there. If a, if a gear gives you more force, it must give you less speed at the same time. If it gives you more speed, it has to give you less force. That's why when you're going up a hill in a low gear, you have to pedal much faster to do the same distance unless your bike has an engine. Okay. And when you're going along the straight. Yeah, why are you governing my life based upon how a gearbox works? Uh, then gears give you more speed, but they reduce the force that they're producing with the pedals in the same proportion. Whatever you gain something from a gear, you must lose something else at the same time to make up for it. So it's like that when you're balancing your life, you have to balance ministry and work and family. And that's not easy. How many of you have got it all figured out and you have it perfectly balanced in your life? Your household is all like, it's all good. Um, that's got it. Yeah. Okay. So um, in fact, very few over all of the years that I've been in ministry for 22 years now that I've been in ministry, I've had very few people give me a good answer as to how to actually balance ministry and work and children and your family. And not very many people. I've, I, a couple of examples that I've heard that's like, man, that makes sense. That's tangible. I can do that because some people will say, well, don't, you know, you just, you can't do that. Or you, we've got into every, and you should, God should not be first in your life. He should be woven into every part of your life. I understand that. And I understand that you have to, um, you have to do the best that you can to balance your time with your children, the time with your family, the time at home and the time in ministry. But honestly, it, very few people have ever been able to say, here's exactly how you do it. Um, I heard a question and answer. We were sitting at a conference one time, a question and answer with uh, Mark Batterson. He had very good answers. I don't have time to get into them today, but he had very good answers. But then I heard this scripture um, from another panel that was at a conference, and it was from um, Charlotte Gamble. And, uh, and she gave this scripture in this, because somebody asked her that question, how do you balance being, um, you're a mom, you're a pastor, um, you travel, how do you balance it all? So this is the scripture that she gave me and I have it written. I have it printed on our wall in the office. I say it often because this is the best explanation that I've ever heard. So I would go with me to Matthew chapter 11, Matthew 11, another one out of context. So the question is, how do I obey is really kind of what she's uh, talking about. So what is the solution? What is the secret to obedience? Because all you're doing is preaching law. Verse 28. If you have a message translation, if you're using an electronic Bible, then flip over there to the. Yeah, the message is not a translation message. I'm going to read it from the message. But 1128. Okay, and uh, your your version probably says, "Come to me, all that you, all of you that are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls." Sounds like an allusion to the gospel: salvation by grace through faith, not by works. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, which is awesome. I could teach on that for for days, the yoke, because you, you think about yoke and you think about a, um, have you ever seen that people are trying to explain that the yoke is like a oxen yoke? You know what that looks like? However, that really, what it, it, that works. That illustration works actually, but Jesus was a first century rabbi. 
Okay. And rabbis had a yoke. That was their ways, their interpretation of the scripture and their way of doing things. That was their yoke. And so when he says, my yoke was easy, my burden is light. He's saying my interpretation of the scriptures and my way of doing things is light and it's not burdenous. But let's read it in the message translation. Uh Uh-huh. The message is not a translation. It is a bad, horrible, bad, awful paraphrase. The message says in verse 28, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to <laughs> this. <laughs> yes, and your religion is burning me. I'm burned out on this sermon already. To me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like an ad in the yellow pages. <laughs> Jesus took out an ad in the yellow pages. Oh, man. Walk with me. And work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. (laughs) The unforced rhythms of grace. Oh, I've heard that before. This is a train wreck of a sermon. Please preach the gospel. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Man, that changed my life. Yeah, you do know that that points to the gospel and salvation by grace through faith and not by works. In fact, apart from works. That changed my life. I wasn't even there. I listened to the recording of it because I was in a different breakout session, but I listened to the recording and that just, that's changed my life. It really has. Where whatever you do to balance, you have to be purposeful. You have to do it on purpose. If life just happens and you're not organized, then life will run over you. Yeah, what? where's the burden is light part again? You've just made the burden really heavy all of a sudden. You did that effortlessly, by the way. It'll eat up all your groceries and it will, it will just, yeah. So then lean on Jesus. It says, walk with me and work with me. It didn't say just lay down and rest and you don't have to do anything. We all have to do stuff. It says, but if you will work, walk with me and work with me, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Please explain what grace is in that context. You know, I'm talking when the, when the worship team is up here and they're in rhythm, everything, you know, if it's, if it gets out of time anywhere, then you know it. It's obvious. If you don't know music, when it gets out of time, you, un, you know exactly when it happens, right? You can hear that because it's, it's the rhythm is not right. The rhythm is not right on time. Everything is about timing. Timing is everything. Timing is everything. The unforced rhythms of grace. Unforced. Not, not um, trying to fit. So notice she's exegeting the paraphrase. Get it together and get it all done and make it all happen. And where you're like sweating and sweating everything and trying to deal with your life and kids and family and, and everything that you have to do. It says unforced rhythms of grace. God, you have no idea what that means, do you? Grace, his unmerited favor. Oh, there it is. A mention of God's unmerited favor because she defined what grace is. Yes. And what does that have to do with, you know, maybe the gospel? His undeserved favor, his grace. That's the way I want to do life. How about you? <laughs> Unmerited favor doesn't make you do. What are you talking about? Unfair to, unmerited favor is received. It isn't done. I want the unforced rhythms of grace in my life. Not hard, not stressful, not trying to figure it all out. 
Get so basically, you're saying if I'm just if I just obey, my life would be less stress stressful. <laughs> oh man, I'm going to lose it. Your family, your best hours. Give your family your best hours. Whatever you have to do to make that happen. You so can- she's interpreting the unforced rhythms of grace as obedience to the law. <laughs> oh, man, this is a train wreck. We continue. Can't be nice to the checkout person and then growl at your kids on the way home in the van. You know, you're nice to everybody else, but you're you know, nice to the people that you love the most and live in the house with. That's not cool. You got to figure something out. But yet that's the way we do it sometimes, don't we? Come on. I've growled at my kids a lot. <laughs> you know, I'm nice to everybody here. Hi, how are you? Yes, get in the car. Yeah. <laughs> Is that a confession of sin? I remember the days where we had to stand in the long lines and pick them up from kids' church. You know, my kids were here when they were little. And then when they were, when they were teenagers, it was like you couldn't find them. You may have teenagers, you cannot find them when it's time to get in the car. <laughs> so we just, started, um, we just started texting them. We were texting them and saying, uh, the car is leaving in five minutes. If you're in it or if you're not, we're leaving without you. And we did a few times. So they figured it out. You get in the car when you're supposed to, but you know, but to, to do that, you try to figure everything out. So it didn't do everything perfect, but you know, give your, give your family your best hours. And that's the thing is that, so you have to sow energy to reap energy. I have to tell myself this on a daily basis. I have to sow energy to reap energy. 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 I have to, I say that. Yeah, well, stop saying that over again. It's not- not found in the Bible. What are you talking about? All the time. And it's, but you understand what I'm saying? You have to sow energy. You're going to have to walk a little bit, work out a little bit, exercise a little bit. If you want energy, if you, how many of you are tired? You just need more energy. You raise your hand. It's okay. We're, this is a spiritual hospital. You can raise your hand. We're all family. Okay. And so you see what I'm saying? A lot of us need more energy. We need, we need that. So you have to sow energy to reap energy. And so that might mean that you have to eat the right things, that you have to take some vitamins, that you have to take care of yourself, that you have to do those things. What happens if you put sugar in your gas tank? Ooh, boom. I laid the boom almost. If you put sugar in your gas tank, it's not going anywhere after that. Doesn't it ruin the engine? Am I right about that? It ruins it like you, it's done forever, right? Am I right, dudes? Yeah. Okay. So, so that's what happens. So why do you think it's going to work efficiently when you try to run it in your body all the time and where it's overpowering everything else? Yeah, these, these are the unforced rhythms of grace. Uh-huh. I learned that the hard way, you know, so I had to figure it out. And so I did. And, and so it's something that it's, again, it's a balance. You have to figure it out, but figure out what, what's going to do that. Be on purpose. Do your life on purpose. Be on purpose for your kids. Be on purpose for your wife. Be on purpose for your, uh, for your, for your boss. Be on purpose in your life, where, wherever that is for you. All right, let's change gears. Look at your neighbor and say, let's change gears. Yeah, she's going to ratchet it up even higher on the law scale here. All right, reverse. Reverse. We only put um, the gear in reverse long enough to position ourselves to change the gear to drive. That's the purpose of reverse. 
That's healthy. You should do that. If you have to back up a little bit, position yourself so that you can put it in drive. You have to do that on a regular basis. You can't just go through without reverse, except for unless you have a motorcycle. You don't have reverse on a motorcycle. That's a whole different message. I have that somewhere. <laughs> All right. So backing up and positioning yourself can be healthy. Sometimes we have to back up and see where we missed it. You have to back up a little bit and just figure out where, where did I miss it here? God never misses it. Let me just tell you right now. He never, ever, ever misses it. We missed it somewhere. Somewhere along the line, you can speak the right things and have everything in line. You think you have everything there, but somewhere, if you missed it or something didn't happen the way that you thought or as fast as what, somewhere along the line, then I know I missed it. And when I do that, I have to figure out that I'm, I'm lacking knowledge in some area. I'm destroyed for lack of knowledge. So I have to back up and figure out where did I miss it and where did I lack knowledge and ask for wisdom so that I can go forward. Okay. Yeah, you know, like that part where it says that a woman's not to teach, um, she's to remain silent in the church. You know, that, right? Uh huh. Sometimes you have to figure that out. God didn't miss it. He didn't say, well, you know, you can't have that. I mean, he is a good, loving, awesome God. He wants you to have everything that his word says that you can have. Okay? And so if you miss it somewhere, it's your, it's your fault somewhere along the line. It just is. And then so you figure it out. Okay, so, but we can learn from our mistakes. Celebrate noble failure. Take a risk. If you fall on your face, it's okay. Get up, move on. Put it in reverse. See where you missed it and then put it in first gear and hit the gas. You don't have time to stay here. And you can't be idle. You certainly cannot be idle. Law, 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 law. Really more law and more law. She's just piling up. These are the unforced rhythms of grace, you know. Uh, But uh, this is more like a sheep beating. You sheep, get your get your sheepy things in gear. Come on, get out of neutral. Get moving, you sheep. Get along. Come on, sheepies. Yeah, this, this is awful. Wow. You cannot drive very effective also in reverse. You can't. There is a reason why your, 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 your rear view mirror is this big and that your windshield is this big. There's a reason for that. Okay? So you have to understand that we are meant to go forward and only this much reverse, this much forward, this much reverse, this much forward. Okay. Fucking Sesame Street near far. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. That just popped into my head. Okay. <laughs> okay. Philippians chapter three. We were there a minute ago, but I want you to, this is the verse right before that. So you might still be there close to it. Uh. Oh, no, another law verse out of context. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Brethren, I count not myself yet to have laid hold, but this one thing I do, forgetting which those which things are behind me and stretching forward to the things that are before. She's not going to preach the gospel, is she? Yeah, since we're in Philippians chapter 3, can we take a gospel break? Would you mind if I told you about Jesus for a little bit? Um, Yeah, talk about unforced rhythms of grace. That would require you to talk about the unmerited favor of God given as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul, talking about the Judaizers, Philippians chapter 3 verse 2 says this, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
So whatever Philippians 3.13 means, it doesn't mean putting confidence in the flesh, right? So we don't put any confidence in the flesh, Paul says. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yeah. But here's what he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything, all of those things he did under the law, as as, as a loss uh, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them, all of his good works under the law, as rubbish. Scubalon is the word. It's a lot stronger than rubbish. In order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that's from God that depends on faith, so that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection from the dead. So whatever Philippians 3.13 means, it doesn't mean get your your thing in gear and you better just... Yeah, that, no, no. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And we have a complete, perfect standing before God because Christ has bled and died for our sins and taken our sins upon himself. In fact, Philippians 3 that I just read teaches us that God imputes Jesus' perfect righteousness to us as a gift by grace through faith. Yeah, that's right. You have a right standing before God perfectly because God sees you clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's what it's talking about when it talks about the righteousness that is from God that depends on faith. You didn't earn this by your works, and you don't keep it by your works either. It's given by grace through faith. Trust that you're right standing before God is because of what Christ has done for you on the cross. So I hate to say this, that's the end of our gospel break. Nice cold drink of water. Please assume the position, and uh, we will now continue with the sheep beating that we're receiving from this lady, who I don't know what her name is, and after hearing this, I really don't want to know. But yeah, let's get back to, yes, let's take it like a man. Get in there and just, you know, get your thing in gear. You better get busy. Yeah, that's right. These are the unforced rhythms of grace, you know. Forget the things that are behind Stretch forward to the things that are before. <laughs> okay, this fits perfectly with the with the um, Sesame Street thing. Forgetting what you're behind and going forward with the things that are before you. Okay, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 18 and 19 says, Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall sprout. Shall you not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Some of you need a river in the desert. You're walking around dry. Yeah, and I'm withering under the scorching heat of this law sermon with no gospel. Yeah, talk about dry. Yeah, I feel like I'm turned into a piece of beef jerky. There's rivers in the desert. If you just look up, there's wells all around. That happened to, to hate. If you just look up, you'd see all the rivers everywhere. So why aren't you looking up? Gosh, she's crying and whining and like, I'm going to die and I don't have anything. There were wells all the way around her. Okay. So let go of the past. Let go of the past. Let go of the past. Some of you need that this morning. Let go of the past. Your past does not define your future. It does not. You must, must, must. 
Must, must, must. More sheep beating going on now. You must forgive everyone in your life, past or present, for all of the spineless, stupid, mean, hurtful, nasty, insensitive, cruel things that have ever done to you, both real and imagined. That means you need to forgive this woman for beating you the way she is. Stuff happens. You have to move on. We are all human. If you carry around bitterness in your heart or other emotional baggage, it keeps your prayers from being heard. I want my prayers to be You want to talk about forgiveness and you're doing that apart from talking about Christ's forgiveness of our sins? Really? Be heard, don't you? Okay. Matthew 6, 14 says that. It says, in prayer, there's a connection between what God does and what you do. You can't get forgiveness from God, for instance, without also forgiving others. If you refuse to do your part, you cut yourself off from God's part. That's what the word says about it. Can you tell me about God's part again? You haven't mentioned that part yet. So you must also forgive yourself without mental reservation for your stupid, moronic, inappropriate thoughts, negativity, or anything else that you have ever done in your life. So you want me to forgive myself. Does Jesus forgive me of my sins? Does his cross have anything to do with forgiveness? Life. We all have to do this on a regular basis. You have to do it. Emotional balance and blessing always lag behind the actual act of forgiveness. Emotional balance, huh? Yeah. Which text are we looking at now? It always lags behind. God's grace and restoration is an amazing gift. Accept it. I agree. Tell me more about the details of it. You want me to accept it, which is the Pelagian heresy. But can you give me more of the details about his amazing gift, please? You're worth it. I'm worth it. I, I Can you tell me what I was worth? You feel like you don't deserve it, but you do. I, re- really? Uh, no, actually, I deserve God's wrath. I don't deserve his forgiveness. To say I deserve his forgiveness is to say I earned it. That's not the gospel. That's the law. You're worth it. Accept that restoration of the gift that God gives us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, probably almost in every other message I ever do. If you're a student in here for 24-7, you've heard this a million times. You know it by heart. It says, pulling down imaginations. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought into the obedience of Christ. You see what I'm saying? Because here, here's the thing is when a thought comes into your head and you're like, I'm not good enough. I can't do this. I can't believe what uh, my parents did to me. Yeah, believing that you're not good enough is a good thing. First uh, John chapter 1 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So saying you're not good enough is, well, what it means to confess. You know what I'm saying? I can't believe how I've been hurt. I can't believe what my ex has put me through. I can't believe this and that. When you have that thought that comes to your mind, you have to decide, is this a thought you need to process or is this a thought you need to cast down? If it's not a thought that's yours and it's not positive, it's not doing you any good, you need to take that thought and you cast it down. That's what it is. You take that thought captive and you say, that's not my thought. I cast that down in the name of Jesus. That's not my thought. That's not what that text is saying. Oh, wow. This is just awful. I'm getting rid of that right now. It's, it has to happen at the thought level because see what happens is, is, um, if it comes into your mind and then you, uh, and, and then you process it and then you start dwelling on it, then it becomes an imagination. You start imagining how, 
what horrible your life is, how everybody has done you wrong. Did you go to the Joel Osteen school of exegesis? How I can't believe that this has happened, how you deserve to wallow in your despair. <laughs> you deserve it, right? So you imagine it and keep imagining it until it becomes a stronghold in your life. And once it becomes a stronghold, it's got you. And so, uh, yeah, no, actually, we're born dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, n- not that, oh, man. <sighs> so that's why you have, you have to take it at the thought level and say, I cast that thought down. That's not my thought. And sometimes your enemy speaks to you in first person. I'm not good enough. I'm not enough. I'm not doing this enough. I can't believe this happened to me. And it's not really you talking, it's your enemy. He said, that's not my thought. That's not me talking. I cast that down in the name of Jesus. That's, that's trying to, that's not that you have to take it at that point and, and move on with it. You can't do that. There is hope. There's hope in your life because Jesus is your healer. He- yeah, you haven't really given me any reason to have hope at this point. In fact, I'm despairing at this point of the sermon. He already paid the price on the cross for your healing. He wants you to walk in divine health. Oh, he already paid the cross. He paid the price on the cross for your healing. That's not the gospel. That's more akin to the word of faith heresy and prosperity and health and wealth. Wow. And in every area of your life, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You can trust him because his word says, don't, don't lean to your own understanding. Don't give up or quit. Don't get weary and well-doing. It just means don't get tired and doing good. Switch gears. He wants you to be free, to be whole, to be loved, to be accepted, to be successful. You are enough. And if you're not at all of those things, you need to get your thing in gear. He wants you to have more than enough. Your potential is limitless. He wants you to have everything. My potential is limitless. Yeah, by the way, I've over the years said that the uh, word of faith heresy literally causes people to despair. And this is an example of, of you know, the type of preaching that will lead people to despair. And you're hearing a, a litany of slogans here that come from the Word of Faith teaching. And it's not biblical. And like I said, this will lead people to despair. Atheism looks a lot easier than this. We continue. Be diligent. Put intense effort on your dream. What is your dream? What do you put intense effort on your dream? Oh. You do put intense effort on it and get it done. Okay. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Another passage totally out of context. Romans 12 verse 11. I'm going to read 11 through 18. I'm going to read it from the message translation. Okay. It says, don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled and aflame. Be alert servants of the master. Cheerfully expect it. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. Help needy Christians. Be inventive in hospitality. Bless your enemies. No cursing under your breath. Mm Mm-hmm. Hmm. Laugh when you're happy with your happy friends, when they're happy and shed tears when they're down, get along with each other and don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies. And now notice all imperatives. These are, you need to do, 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 do 
all of these imperatives are separated from the indicatives. And what I mean by that, an imperative is something that tells you what you have to do. But when you read all of these imperatives in their context, they're never preached apart from the saving work of Christ and total salvation by grace through faith alone. We got a big problem here. I mean, this, again, she, all imperatives, do, 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 do. And they, like I said, these are supposedly the unforced rhythms of grace, unmerited favor. I don't think so. Don't be the great somebody. <laughs> don't hit back. Discover the beauty in everyone. If we would just stop and just look, okay, one more scripture, okay. If you've got it in you, get along with everybody. If we would just look at people like Jesus looks at them, I mean, we're called Christians for a reason because we're supposed to act like Christ. However, as a whole, as a whole, Christians don't really act like Christ a lot from out there, what I see. If we would just love people, if we would just stop and just look through, look at people like Jesus sees people, that he looks past their stupid, moronic activity and just loves them. Yeah, no, actually, he doesn't look past it. He actually has all of that stupid moronic activity placed upon him while he's suffering and bleeding for people on the cross and dying for their sins, being punished in their place. So, no, he doesn't just overlook it. Whatever they do, whatever they say, you know, it's, you know, people, people don't think like you. We all think differently. Yet, somehow or another, we always try to judge people based on the knowledge that we have in our own brains. And that's not fair. They don't have the knowledge that you have in your brain. They have theirs. So when they're like, what were they thinking? They don't think like you. They don't act like you. They do different things. But if you just look past that and see the good in everybody, Jesus did. You know, the vilest people, the craziest people, the people that nobody wanted to hang out with, the people who are like blasting all kinds of negative stuff on their Facebook page. You know, they were doing all of that. And Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to go home and eat with you today. <laughs> hey, let's go hang out. Hey, come follow me. I mean, Jesus picked the B team. He didn't pick like the best of the best. <laughs> he went after him, the B team and said, hey, come follow me. I got something for you. I got something more for you, you know? So the thing is, the question is, what are you going to do about it? You know, that, that's the thing. Are you going to go home and make any changes in your life? Or are you going to go home and eat lunch and forget that I was even up there? And, oh, what was that chick's name? I don't, I'm not really sure. But I know church was good. Yeah, no clue what her name is. Thank God at this point. Music was good, but... I don't know. She said something about, I remember that video. That was, good. you know, if you go home and don't make any changes, see knowledge is not power. Have you heard that before? There used to be a little thing. Knowledge is power. Knowledge is not power. Applied knowledge is power. Unless you apply it, it doesn't do you any good. It doesn't. Aren't you tired of being in neutral? Are you tired of spinning your wheels in first? You have the zeal, but you keep dropping the clutch and stalling out. Maybe you're sick of being in reverse and you just can't let go of the past. You're trying to drive through life looking in your rearview mirror and you can't see anything because you're not looking in the windshield. You're looking in your rearview mirror. All of that can change today. All of that is your choice. Yeah, is this going to change by a choice? Well, if that were true, then everybody would keep their New Year's resolutions. You know what I mean? All you got to do is make a decision and yeah, there you go. You can no longer just be a neutral. You can get your... Uh, you're behind in gear, you know? But your life. You're the driver. You get to choose what you do about that. So here's what I believe about you. Philippians 1.6. I'm going to read this to you. I'm saying this to you. There has never been the slightest doubt in my mind that the God who started this great work in you would keep it and bring it to flourishing finish on the every day that Jesus Christ appears. 
There's no doubt in my mind that the God who started a great work in you is not going to finish it and that you will flourish and do it. But it's up to you what you do with it. It's your call. Your will, do you know your will is stronger than God's will? Really? My will is stronger than God's will. How do you figure that? Apparently, we're stronger than God. Mm -hmm. Which biblical text says that again? He gave you free will. You choose. You get to choose what you No, actually, all of us are dead in trespasses and sins, and Scripture is clear in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, that we are not saved by a choice or a decision that we make. We are born of God. So um, God is the one who is sovereign, not our so-called free will. You do with that, or if you do anything about it, it's your choice. Okay, stand with me. No, no, I will not stand with you. Um, You're going to beat us some more, aren't you? Here comes the commitment part of the service. You got to exercise your free will. See, the thing is, is that you can change gears. You can, ha- you can have all of this knowledge. You can apply it to your life. But if you don't have a relationship with Christ, you're trying to do all this on your own. You're trying to do it with no instruction and n- no help. And you fall on your face all the time. And you're trying to figure out why is none of this is working for you. Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God, the Holy Spirit, is now descending on the auditorium in order to help people as they make decisions and exercise their free will to, you know, get in gear. Do you realize that God is the creator of the universe? We have one true God. He is the creator of the universe. He created you to have a relationship with him. But when sin came into the earth, it separated us from God. Yeah, this is true. That's the whole point why he sent Jesus here on the earth to die for your sins. Okay, so now we have a mention of Jesus dying for our sins at the very end. No no joke. We went 45 minutes, 30 seconds just being pummeled by law and being told to get in gear and obey. So, okay, so now we've you've made everybody a sinner. And now, okay, you're mentioning something at the very, very end about Jesus. To walk on this earth as a human being. He walked on this earth as a human being. He knows what you feel like. All the human emotions that you go through, everything that you've been through in your life, every temptation, loss, betrayal, he knows what all of that feels like because he walked through all of it. So when you feel like that now, he says, I know exactly how you feel. I can help you through that because I was there. I was in human form and I know what that feels like. So we have an empathetic Jesus, which is true, but how does that cash out exactly in my life? And he died for your sins. He rose again on the third day. Yes. Do you mean the sins of where I haven't been in gear or I've been in neutral or I have that area of my life that I haven't just mastered yet? Is that what you're referring to? You realize that we have the only God that's alive. So many religions on this earth, they all serve a God that's dead. We have the only God that's alive. He died for your sins, and then and then he did all of that for you just so you'd have a choice. That always just... Now, notice here that she's talking as if, oh, this is for the person who hasn't yet already made a decision to, you know, accept Jesus into their heart. She's not preaching the gospel to the people there who are already Christians. Nope, she's not. Because she said, you know... Those of you who are trying to do this without having, you know, Jesus, you're trying to do this all on your own. You need Jesus' help. And so she's, this is an evangelism call. 
This is not to pronounce that Christ bled and died for the sins of those who weren't, didn't have their parts of their life in gear or were living in neutral. This is not to pronounce forgiveness for falling short and living your life in neutral or living in first gear when you should have been in third gear. Nope. This is uh, to get people to make a decision to accept Jesus so they can get busy and get out of neutral and then get into gear. Baffles my mind that he did all of that for us just so you'd have a choice. And so many people, and maybe some of you might say, nah, I'll just do life on my own. He did all of that, laid it all out there for So notice the forgiveness of sins isn't being applied to the people falling short who are already Christians. For you, so that you could choose to live life with him, to commit your life to him and be a Christ follower, or to do life on your own. And you get to choose that. You can walk away and say, I don't like this God thing, I'm going to do life on my own. So she's trying to close the sale here, get somebody to make a decision for Jesus so they get on the fun, you know, get into the fun park of all of her getting gear works. He did it all anyway for you. That's so awesome that we have a God like that. So I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Yeah, no, um, I will not be joining you for that. So you get the point. So the gospel doesn't come out for the people who've transgressed by having their life in neutral. No, it's only for the person who hasn't already made a decision for Jesus. Law, 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 law. Oh, and here's the gospel, but don't think it applies to you because you've already made a decision for Jesus. This only applies to the people who haven't already, you know, crossed the line of faith the way they talk. No absolution, no forgiveness. Christ and his forgiveness not applied to Christians. All they get is the brow-beating, nagging pep talk, if you would. Yeah, that was pretty much one of the most awful things I've ever heard. Unfortunately, I've heard many sermons like this in my lifetime. Not properly dividing law and gospel, not properly understanding the law and its uses, and not understanding that the gospel also applies to those who are Christians. This sermon fails on every front, and I mean that, every single front. What did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My mail address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.